0: Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Brisbane podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches. You've joined us in our series, First Peter, hope in the midst of suffering. In this series, we will discover how to experience hope within suffering through learning how to embrace love, submission and identity in the midst of challenges as we follow the example of Christ. We pray that this message is a blessing. that you want to speak to us. Lord, I have prepared something to share, but what you want to share is much better. And so Lord, help me forget that which would be unhelpful. Remember that which would be helpful. And Father, as we sit under the weight of your word, would we each be transformed into the image of your son, Jesus, for our joy, your glory and the blessing of the world, we pray and all God's people said, amen, amen. Um, I was at the gym the other day, no jokes allowed, and uh, and this is not your invitation to be my accountability partners, but I was at the gym the other day and I was chatting with a guy and um, he finally found out that I was a pastor. And upon finding out that I was a pastor, he did two things. the first thing people often do is they apologise for all the swearing they've done up in the conversation up to that point, point. and I turned to him and said, mate, I don't give a, no, I'm kidding. Um, but he apologises, we spend some time, and I was like, we shared a bit of my story and that kind of thing, and, but the second thing he did is he starts to outline all the Christian events that he goes to to sort of, sort of make this case that actually I might be a Christian too. And as he was talking, he revealed something which I think is sort of a popular street-level Australian approach to what people think Christianity is. And he sort of made this two-fold argument that one, I go to these Christian events that's sort of like the red zones in the year, Christmas and Easter. I'm like, I go to a church at Easter and at Christmas time. And then two, um, I actually love, I love the morals of Jesus. And I'm trying to, like, sort of modify my behaviour in a number of different ways, and he started to outline those things. And I remember thinking, actually, I think you've portrayed yourself in a similar way to what I think a lot of people think Christianity is, which is simply this, institutional events at particularly religious times or behaviour modification for individuals. And I remember thinking, now, it's not less than that, but that didn't make me start following Jesus in the first place, right? But this is quite popular, quite general. And uh, I used to think this before I was a Christian. But to my surprise, as I started reading the Scriptures and going to church myself and learning about the way of Jesus in community, I discovered that God's vision for the church is just way more revolutionary than that and way more dynamic than that. And God's vision for individuals is way more holy and beautiful and life-giving than that as well. And we've been walking through the sermon series through the book of 1 Peter, And in the first week, Dylan unpacked what it means that we have the promise of hope in the midst of suffering, that God, by grace through faith, gives us something on the inside of ourself that nothing on the outside can take away. It's this heavenly inheritance that we await as we enter into eternity at the end of time that begins to leak its way into our time as we follow Jesus as the church. That's week one. Week two, I unpacked the first part of the text that you just heard um, read by Emma, and we looked at what it means for us to be a chosen people, got a bit controversial on that first bit, A royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that we might declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Beautiful image of what the church is called to be, sort of like 45 degree mirrors, representing God to the world and representing people to God. Priests, royal, God's made himself a people here on earth again for that. And this week, I wanna do sort of like a 2.0 on what the identity of the church is and how it shapes the mission as we look out to the world and how it shapes our own relationship with ourselves. So two points, signposts, here we go. 1 Peter chapter 2, 11 to 12, two things, our witness in the world, and second, our relationship with ourselves or our desires. Does that sound okay? One's external, one's internal, one's me looking out at the world that needs Jesus, one's looking into my own heart that seems to wanna run away from Jesus. Number one, our witness in the world. To understand a bit of what Peter invites us into, particularly with the language of foreigners and exiles, and we'll jump into the text in sort of like two moments here, you have to understand the way in which other religions sort of map their own witness out in the world. What do I mean? Well, when sociologists look at religions, they sort of divide religions based on the way they act and inhabit the world, and there's sort of two camps. You'll see a table on the screen behind me. I love tables, this preaching series. But the table on the screen behind me seems to summarise the way in which different religions relate to the world, as best as we can tell, and in the way that sociologists have mapped this out. So you might call one group the separatists, and you might call the other group the conformists. Now, the separatist group, what their key, what their key desire is is to be holy, and they think that the way in which they can witness to the world, do mission in the world, reach out to the world, is actually to separate themselves from the world. Why? Because if they pursue holiness, they would be a good representation of what God wants them to be. And so here's what they think along the way in pursuing this holiness and being separate. They think that, um, that culture is bad. They think that um, the way in which therefore we witness to the world is to combat culture. And therefore, along the way, in being separate and pure and um, distinct and far away from the world and cloistered off from the world, they think they're being faithful to the call of God on their lives. Now, here's what I'm saying. I'm not thinking about particular religions here. Christians can do this. In fact, in the first century Jewish world, this is what you might call the Pharisaical camp. The Pharisees believed in first century Jerusalem that the kingdom of God would return, God would come back and restore his people to the promised land, they would get what God promised to them if people would pursue holiness, morality, a good ethical life, in other words, purity. Separatist. The other end of the spectrum is what you might call the conformist. Now the conformist religious groups, Christians can do this too, is they think culture is good, not bad. That culture is good, and therefore, our job is not to combat culture, but actually to conform to culture along the way. They prize relevance over, say, weirdness, closeness and proximity, rather than separation and distinctiveness. And what happens along the way is, rather than thinking, I'm being holy, they think, I'm being cool. And they sacrifice faithfulness on the altar of relevance weirdness on the altar of proximity as a means by which to outwork their mission. You've got the conformist camp and the separatist camp. Now here's what happens. The, the conformist camp thinks of the separatist camp that they're just being weird, right? They're in a holy huddle, cloistered off from the world, no relevance, why would I listen to them? They're separate and they're distinct. Whereas the separatist camp thinks of the conformists that they're just irrelevant sorry, indistinguishable, I should say. You'll like the world, you've got nothing to offer, and this is how it gets broken down by sociologists. You've got the conformists and the separatists. Now here's what happens. If I'm in a more separatist religious persuasion, and I'll be done with this in a moment, I promise, here's what you need to do in order to be part of my membership, you need to become like me. If you want to enjoy this community, if you want to meet the God we claim to follow, you need to become like me. Whereas for the conformist, it's actually, no, you can, um, I'm going to become like you. Do you see this? I'm going to become like you and along the way, fail to therefore offer anything of distinction or difference in your world. Now, here's what happens when these two groups at polar ends of the spectrum um, sort of you boil down the sort of bottom line of what they're achieving in the world. Three results, they've got this in common. Number one, neither group experiences suffering. Think about this, if I'm with people who are like me in a holy huddle I call Christianity, separate from the world, cloistered off from everyone else, I don't need to get involved in the mess out there. So I want to experience the suffering. I want to involve myself in the muck and the mire. But the same's true for the conformists. See, if you look out at the world and you say, culture's good, doesn't need to change, so when you intersect yourself with it, you won't try and cause change. You only suffer if you try and cause change, you bring a different ethic, a different ethos into the world of which you're a part. You both avoid suffering. The second thing they've got in common is they they both amass cultural power. Think about this. If I sit in my holy huddle with people who are like me and I say, man, the world out there is evil, who's gonna give me power? Everyone in the room. I'm with like-minded people and I sort of make my way to the tippy top of the cultural ladder in the community of which I'm a part. Separate, no suffering, I amass cultural power. But if I'm in the conformist camp, here's what happens. I amass cultural power, not by being liked by the community of which I'm already a part, but by being liked by the people out there in the culture that I actually think's fine. Amass cultural power. And the last thing that both of these groups have in common is this, and here's the big one. Neither make much of a difference at all. Neither the conformist nor the separatist makes much of a difference in this world at all. So when the Bible talks about the church making a difference in the world, how does it envision that we do that? Great question. Peter would use these words. He would say, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles in this world, as holiday makers." and as aliens in this world. And he paints this picture, and here's the bottom line of this text, and you've heard this language before, actually probably in church, that the best way to have a good witness in the world is to be in the world but not of it. To neither be separate, nor at the same time conform. To seek to be relevant, but never at the expense of your faithfulness to the king you claim to serve. That's how we do it by being an alien who's made their home here. At the same time, who realise that, he- that heaven is our ultimate home because of which this world is wasting away and one day will be renewed and so it's relativized to the ultimate vision that God has for it. This is the image of what it means to hold attention as we witness in the world, neither separate nor conformed, but actually a holy, what John would, t- would call a beautiful resistance in the midst of this world. In other words, let me boil it down this way, Christians aren't meant to fit. And here's what I want you to take away from this first point. Christians aren't meant to fit. And I'll just say that again, because in the room, we've got university students preparing for a life of growing in their career. We've got those who are further on in their career battling and navigating, negotiating conversations at work. We've got people in the room who are mothers, perhaps divorcees. We've got people in the room who are fathers, themselves, perhaps divorcees. We've got people in the room who are single, want to be engaged, want to be married. We've got a whole host of people in the room and no matter what your background, what your country of origin, what your story, here's what the text would say to us in language we can understand. You're not meant to fit here. We're just not meant to fit. We're meant to be aliens. So you asked me, well, what examples do we have of this actually playing out in history? Really glad you asked. Two examples, one from sort of ancient world and one from the contemporary world. I don't know if you know this, but if you're an alien in this world, then you will always find cultures that critique you while at the same time compliment you all at the same time. And this has happened in history. I'll give you an example. Um, when Christians, when Christianity first begun, can I say that? That's probably historically not accurate, but when Jesus lived his life, died his death, was resurrected and the church was born, small that's better, um, what happened was uh, the Rome, that happened in a Roman world and in the Roman world, the religious ether of that time is what you might call polytheistic. It's the last big word I'll use, I promise. And polytheism is the belief that there are many gods, and in the Roman world in particular, they had hundreds, if not thousands, if not millions of gods, and the notion was, the belief was, that if we have something we need in this life, say fertile crops, or a fertile womb, or we need rain to come, or we need good weather, or we need this relationship, then you'd create a god in that image so you could contend before that god to deliver the good that you're after. It's what we call polytheism, in a sense, paganism but when Christianity came along, Christianity had this belief, there is no God but Yahweh, and Yahweh's revealed himself to us in Jesus, what we call monotheism. And there's some Roman texts, particularly by a historian, by a guy named Tacitus, and he would write of early Christianity that they were atheists. Now, pause with me. Atheism is the belief that there's no gods. And you've got a historian in the first century calling Christians atheists. How is that possible? Easy. If the Roman world had millions of gods and Christianity just said, actually, there's no god but one, they are atheists, except for one god. And in contrast to Roman culture, Christians themselves were indeed atheists. Now, here's what's interesting. That's ancient culture. That's the critique that was brought against Christians. The critique in the modern world is the exact inverse. Follow me here. Just go with me on this one. In our world, particularly at the turn of the 20th century, the 21st century, sorry, there was four guys who started writing. Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, Christopher Hitchens, and some other guy, I can't remember, Sam Harris, there we go. And these guys were called the four horsemen of the atheistic apocalypse. And there were people who sort of in writing and in speech attacked Christianity. And here's what's really interesting about them. They were people who didn't believe in any God whether the multiplicity of the polytheistic world, or in Jesus, or Yahweh, or whatever Christianity might claim. And so here's what's interesting. In the Roman world, in first century Jerusalem, Christians were called atheists, but in the modern world we're called theists, and there's atheists out there. What's happening? You've got different cultures intersecting with Christianity all at the same time, critiquing it from different lenses. Why? Because every culture, whatever it is, will always have a critique to bring against Christianity and Christians and the church, and a compliment to bring against Christians and Christianity and the church. I'll give you another example. This, this one, that first one didn't feel like it hit home. Another example is think about our contemporary world. The Christian values, say the moral values of the Christian worldview. We um, believe in life. We believe in family. We believe in forgiving others and turning our cheek and living costly lives of love. You take those cultural values and different systems and nations and communities will experience them differently. Let me put it this way. Take the notion of um, loving your neighbour and going the extra mile and forgiving. And then take the Christian sexual ethic. Now, if you intersect those two values in a modern, progressive, western, liberal democracy, they will be received differently than a more traditional, eastern, conservative culture, right? If I take the notion that there is a claim on our lives with what we do sexually because Jesus is king, in a Western culture, we're gonna be allergic to that, but we're gonna really love the notion that we should forgive our neighbor, turn the other cheek and live costly lives of love. But in honor-shame Eastern culture, more traditional, more conservative, It's going to be really hard for them to accept this notion that we should live costly lives of love, forgive our neighbour and turn the other cheek. But they're going to be really, really warm to the virtue that comes from the sexual ethics of Christianity. Why? Because if you're not made to fit, there will always be cultures that critique and compliment all at the same time. Let me put it this way. Christmas is coming. We're going to find ourselves at dinner tables with family and friends. There's going to be people at that dinner table who sit more left on the political spectrum and others who sit more right. On the left side of politics, we're for a big social welfare net, looking after the poor, the marginalised, the downtrodden and the outcast. But we're also for free moral values. Now, as a Christian, here's what's, not, here's what's true. We love the idea that there'd be a body of people, in this case the state, looking after the outcast, the socially downtrodden and the marginalised but we're less, we're less excited about free morality. If Jesus is king, everything's on the table, especially how we live our ethical lives. What about on the right side of politics? The right side of politics, generally speaking, perhaps more so in America, therefore the free market. They don't want to regulate what's happening in the market. But what happens when you don't regulate the market? People like loan sharks and a whole host of things end up perpetuating the circumstances that make people poor. What am I saying? I'll stop, I'll stop giving examples if you are truly made not to fit, you'll always find people that critique you and compliment you if you live a true Christian life. That's all I'm saying. We're aliens in this world, we're not made to fit. One of my favourite theologians, a guy named Stanley Harawas would put it like this, the church stands as an alternative to every nation and I put in their government, community, group, society, culture, witnessing to the kind of life possible for those that have been formed by the story of Christ. What's he saying? He's saying that when people look at you, You shouldn't be conformed to their image and you shouldn't be separate from them. They should say, wow, you're different and maybe I want to know what you know. (laughs) That's the takeaway. That's how we witness to the world. Now, what are we doing? Yeah, great, time's not bad. Um, Here's what I think this could mean for our lives. We're meant to be in the world, but not of it. We're meant to be proximate, but not like it. We're going to be close to our brothers and sisters that don't know Jesus, yet live life in such a way that causes them to ask questions to which Jesus is the answer. That's the vision, that's the tension, that's how we relate to the world outside. Um, I'll move on, I've got some application points, but let me just read verse 12 and we'll go to the second point. He would say this, live such good lives among the pagans, non-Christians, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Um, I'm going to skip some things because I want to get into this second point because I think it's a bit more contentious. Um, Our relationship with our desires. What an interesting title for our second point, Our Relationship with Our Desires. Now Peter's going to go on here and he's going to say something along the lines of abstain from desires and particularly he's going to use the word sinful or in the original text it would say flesh your fleshly desires. I want to unpack a bit about what that is, but I think we need to address the elephant in the room which is this. Actually different cultures relate to desires differently, do they not? I'm going to give us another spectrum and then walk through what Peter would sort of have us think as we think about desire. Is that okay? Yeah. Awesome, great. How are you all doing? We okay? Very, very good, okay. There's traditional cultures and there's modern cultures. Please forgive me for this, but we're gonna go through. There's traditional cultures and modern cultures. And a traditional culture would say that fleshly desires are bad, right? Conservative cultures, traditional cultures, fleshly desires are bad, which means in a traditional or conservative culture, what you do with your desires is you want to reject them. Now, that's very different from a modern culture. In a modern culture, what we wanna do is actually say that desires are good that to be human is not just to have desires, but to embrace our desires. And because we believe in the modern world that desires are good, you embrace your desires. Now, here's what happens as both of these camps look at one another, the traditional to the modern, the modern to the traditional. The traditional person thinks that if I reject my desires, whatever they are, then I'm going to be happy. The modern person thinks the same thing. If I embrace my desires, I'm going to be happy. But here's what they do when they look at one another. The modern person says of, sorry, yeah, the traditional, The modern person says of the traditional person you're harming your true self if you reject your desires. The traditional person says of the modern person you're harming your ultimate self if you embrace your desires. Think about that. This is where the rubber hits the road. So what do we do with our desires? Because no one knows what to do with them. Do we reject them? and find that actually there's desires within us that could be good and could lead to a good life? Or do we embrace them, uncritically accepting all the desires that come up within our lives, just thinking that if we really just live at the behest of our desires, we'd become the people we should be? Both cultures look at one another absolutely confused and critique along the way. We need to know what to do with our desires. Now, two points, and then we'll go to the text. First point is this, not all of our desires are good. (laughs) Not all of them are good, and not all of them, if fulfilled, will be good for us. I'll give you an example. Um, A few years ago, I was reading a book by Leo Tolstoy. It's called Anna Karenina. Any Russian literature fans in the room? Yep, awesome. It's, It's like I've read two Russian literature novels. Do not let me give you the wrong idea here. But in this book, it tells the story of desire. It tells the story of a lady named Anna Karenina, who's in a marriage she doesn't love, and a guy named Vronsky, who wants her love but Vronsky's not married to Anna. And so the whole book tells the story of Vronsky's pursuit of Anna. And Anna keep pushing him and pushing him and pushing him away until one day she finally gives in. They have an affair, but here's the result. Vronsky, who for so long had wanted Anna as a romantic partner, loses interest after the affair. And Anna, who for so long didn't want to bar this guy, ends up falling deeply in love. And when Tolstoy writes this novel, he moves back from the storytelling and gives commentary as if he's a third party sort of writing his own opinion into the novel. And he had these words to say. Listen to this. He said, despite the full realisation of what he had desired for so long, Vronsky was not fully happy. He soon felt that the realisation of his desire had given him only a grain of the mountain of happiness he had expected. Now listen to these words. It showed him the eternal error people make in imagining that happiness is in the realisation of desires. The eternal error people make in thinking that happiness is in the realisation of desires. Not all desires are good. Not all good desires will make you happy if you follow them through to satisfaction. Second point is not all desires are bad. Anyone heard here of Maslow's hierarchy of needs? A human desire for shelter is a good thing. A human desire for relationship is a good thing. In fact, I think the writer of Ecclesiastes would say the same thing. The writer of Ecclesiastes says we've only got 80 years on this short, vaporous life that we've got. Enjoy food. Enjoy sex. Enjoy relationship. He'd zoom in and say, actually, there's good things we've got desire for, basic needs and mundane things along the way. And even the word that Peter uses in this text, which is a Greek term epithumia, to describe a bad desire, another writer in the New Testament, Paul, in Philippians 1.23, would use the same word to talk about actually good desires. Paul would say, I'm conflicted, quote, I desire to depart and be with Jesus. So here's the point. It's actually not that all desires are good or all desires are bad. It's actually we need a lens through which to interpret the desires we have. That's what we're crying out for, as humans, as people, and most especially as followers of Jesus. We need a lens through which to to interpret what desires we have, whether they're bad or good, ultimate or mundane. Here's the good news, Christianity actually provides that, but I've done a bit of a disservice here. Because if you will grant that all of us have desires, some of them good, some of them bad, That's not the same as following Peter's logic here where he says, actually, there's the kind of desire in you which is sin. And that's much less neutral than saying, oh, some are good, some are bad. Just interpret them and express and embrace the ones that might be good and seek to walk away quite calmly from those that might be bad. The language Peter uses here is that there's the kind of desire in you which is sin and it wants to wage war. Now, it was 1939, I think November 11, and Neville Chamberlain jumps on the radio of the BBC, and he says, Britain declares war against Germany. And when he says those words, what he's saying is, Britain is now in a season where all of our resources, all of our personnel, all of our time, have a one goal, and we're going to take those things and orbit them around that goal, overcoming Germany and the social nationalist state under Hitler's reign. What a strong imperative. What a powerful declaration. Peter's saying the same thing. There are beings in this world, human and other, that are taking all of their resources, all of their time, all of their personnel, and they're looking at the Christian, and they're saying, I declare war on that. Now, in the modern world, we don't like the language of sin so much because it's actually it's been abused in some ways. People have held the notion of sin over Christians' lives and just said, look, if you stuff up, you're out. You can't be part of this community. You're definitely not loved by God. The biblical picture of sin is way more serious than that and also has much more explanatory power than that. It's much more gentle to entertain, but also much more gruesome if you actually wage war against it in the way that actually Peter would talk about here. What do I mean? What is sin? Um, Martin Luther, the reformer, he, um, he was asked what is sin and he looked at the Ten Commandments, you probably have heard of them, and um, that wasn't a joke, but We're there now. Um, And I think when Christians and even non-Christians think of, like, what is sin, they usually think, well, I'm going to look for a rule book in this thing we call the Bible, and I'm just going to use that as a mirror. And if I don't line up to that mirror, then I'm probably sinful and I'm probably stuffed up. And Luther was like, oh, gosh, it's going to be really unhelpful because it's got to be a bit of nuance in the way that we, like, translate the Bible and apply it to our own lives. But he said a really helpful definition if we're looking for one is if you look at the Ten Commandments, he just says, look, if you break the first one, you've probably broken them all. What does he mean? The first one is, um, you shall have no other gods before me. And number two is like, honour your father and mother. Number three is keep the Sabbath holy and all these different things. Lists a bunch of rules and they're good, they're helpful. But Luther makes this point, he's like, if you break the first one, you're probably gonna break the rest. Why? Because actually to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, to be a God-fearer is to elevate God to the ultimate place of importance in your life. And when you elevate anything else, whether good or bad, actually the doorway into sin is a lot more easy. Or let me give you another historical example of a definition of sin. Susanna Wesley, the mother of the two boys, Jonathan and Charles Wesley, she said this, whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, takes off your relish for spiritual things, whatever increases the authority of your body over the mind, that thing is sin to you, however innocent it may seem in yourself. Sin, it's not a category that we can do away with. One story, one application point, and then I'm going to get us to stand and we'll worship. Um, There's an Australian minister who years ago was preaching on the topic of sin, and there was a young mum who came to him and said, hey, I'd really appreciate it if um, next time you preach on sin, you could not use that word, sin, and you could just be a bit more gentle in how you describe how we're meant to live good lives before God. And he said, not a problem at all, but let me just illustrate for you what that could mean for us and our church and particularly your children. So he grabs a bottle of poison from the shelf and he puts it on his desk and he says, look, if you ingest this poison, it'll kill you in five seconds. But suppose I was to take the essential oils label from your peppermint scent that you've got in your kitchen bench and put it on the label of poison and give it to someone, what would happen? And she would say, well, they would die. And the question is, well, why? Well, because you've mislabeled something that's so important, so powerful, has such explanatory power, but is also something bad and should be fleed. And he had these words to say. He said, the milder you make your label, the more dangerous you make your poison. And here's what Peter says. We have sinful desires, and we need to flee them. To get all South American Baptist pastor on us, sin will wreck you. Like, I have the privilege, absolute privilege of serving as a pastor here, but because of that, I hear stories. And it breaks my heart Not because I'm immune myself, I'm like, oh, I must suck for them. I feel it. The temptation to keep scrolling on the internet late at night and therefore shun the marriage vows you made to your spouse years and years ago. The desire to get ahead at work at the expense of a colleague because you slandered them in the background in maybe a way that wasn't True. There's a whole host of things that count for sin, not because we've got a rule in black and white in the Bible, but actually because it means we place another thing above God and we do what Susanna Wesley says. And let me just ask her some questions based off the quote that she's given us. Here's some questions for us as a church. And I'm gonna be honest and share one of mine at the end, if that's all right. But here's some questions I would ask because of what she's written and defined so beautifully. Is there anything in life right now that's currently weakening your reasoning? In other words, you have to sound dumb to justify doing it as a Christian, is there anything in your life right now, in our lives right now, that's weakening your reasoning? Is there anything in your life right now that's impairing the tenderness of your conscience? Or in other words, it's just making you a little bit more numb to evil and unrighteousness in your own life or in the lives of those around you? Anything that's just making you callous at the moment? Is there anything that's obscuring your sense of God or weakening your appetite for spiritual things? Now, I don't have a Bible that says black and white, that's sin, but I've got got a Bible that paints such a picture because of which I can say, actually, that's probably sin. And you see the difference. What should you do? Abstain, flee, run. Now, here's my thing. I've realized as a young adult, it is so easy to go to social events throughout the week, every single night, and get to the end of a week or end of a month and realise, I think I've had a glass of wine every night. Does anyone else feel this? And even in conversation with my wife recently, and in months, years gone by, I've realised, goodness me, it's really easy for the habit of a glass of wine with friends more nights than not throughout a week to turn into a habit of actually relying upon a glass of wine just to make me feel like it's the end of a week. And that slowly but surely can become the kind of thing that I rely upon, it not just to bring me comfort at the end of the week, but actually to become a thing that I finish my day with. Now, here's what I'm not disclosing, alcoholism. There's probably people in this church who might struggle with alcoholism, and that's wonderful for you to admit that, seek help. I'm not there yet, but here's what I'm naming. If I'm not careful, that could weaken my reasoning over time. That could diminish my appetite for spiritual things. And when Paul would write in the letter to the Ephesians, be not filled with wine, but with the Spirit of God, I actually understand what he means. There is something under which we can come under the influence of. And Peter would say, Paul would say, the New Testament would say, run from that thing if it's not the Spirit of God. That's my thing. Now here's what I'm not saying. Kath and I will probably have dinners with people in the coming months, and it's a double date, and we share a bottle of wine. Awesome. What a good gift from God. But I'm vigilant. Why? Because the infinite joy, the beautiful encounter, the life of intimacy with God by the Spirit because of Jesus is on offer to me. And C.S. Lewis would say it like this, we are far too easily pleased in this world with the mission we've got for the world or the desires we've got within our own hearts. He'd say it like this, He'd say, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So what is it for you? You might have something. Would you name it this evening? Perhaps repent of it in the safety of community. And let's go after the infinite joy together. We have a witness to the world. We don't belong here. And we've got desires that we not only need to interpret, perhaps actually need to flee. Because sin will wreck us. But God is of infinite joy and is available to us right here, right now. Why don't we stand? We're going to pray. Father, we recognize that um, it's entirely possible, Lord, that not everything I've shared has been relevant to each of us where we're at. But we started here and we'll finish here. Lord, you've got something for each of us to hear and to which each of us need to respond. And just, friends, while we're in this moment, um, perhaps just in response, you just want to open up your hands and just step into a posture of Surrender before the Lord. And perhaps even in the quiet of your own heart, just ask, even as the worship music begins to play in the background, just ask, Lord, is there anything in my life that you would touch upon right now? Just invite the Spirit into that space. And the image I'd give us is not of us coming before an authoritarian dictator saying, what rules have I broken? It's, we're just not talking about that. We're coming before a heavenly Father who wants good for our lives and just saying, oh God, what's holding me back from the infinite joy? What's holding me back from your loving embrace? What's holding me back, Lord, from the encounter with the Spirit you offer? And as he begins to reveal things to you, just say, Lord, thank you. We're gonna respond in worship and um, I'll jump back up in a few moments and, and lead some more particular ways we can respond. But perhaps each of us, just as we entertain the possibility that God might put his finger on something in our lives right now, just need to step into this next space with just surrender, just a humility and just an invitation to say to the spirit, Yeah, Spirit, would you speak to me? Reveal myself to me and lead me in the way everlasting. And so thank you, Lord. We love you. You're so wonderful. thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you'd like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our Instagram or our Facebook page. We pray that you have a great week. Be blessed.